This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities. Globally, they support sustainable farming practices. Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com, and use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees. It's like there's like a road map, but since I have no sense of direction, my road map is pretty crudely drawn. And then <laughs> I, I've seen somewhere that somebody said it's like, you know, driving along through the forest at 80 miles an hour with your headlights on dim. You don't know what's coming up. Right. <laughs> Which is interesting change on the E.L. Doctorow quote that I often use when describing my own writing process, which is writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. The only difference is I do know where that journey will end. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends and Fiction Writers Blog Podcast. We are very excited about this special guest today. And to get things rolling, I'm handing the mic over to my co-host and author of the forthcoming The Home Wreckers, Mary Kay Andrews. I am Ron Block. And I am Mary Kay Andrews. And Ron, do not hand the mic to me because I already lost one and had to hold <laughs> right. So just so you know. Today, we're talking to Harlan Coben, the mega New York Times and international bestselling author of suspense novels like Win, The Boy from the Woods, Runaway, and his latest, The Match, which is out March 15th. With over 75 million books in print worldwide, Harlan Coben's books are published in 45 languages around Yikes. the world. I know. I didn't know there were 45 languages. He is a creator and executive producer of several Netflix television dramas, including Stay Close, the Stranger, The Five, which, Harlan, that one is my favorite, I think. The Innocent and The Woods. That's nice. And I got to say, just up front, we just binged Stay Close. Like, it was incredible. It's like, thank goodness we had a snowy weekend here in Cleveland. So we, like, boom, 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 more, more, more. Great casting, everything about it. But we're going to talk about all that hopefully soon. Before we get started, I just want to, on behalf of our friends in fiction, sister Patty Callahan, thank you, Harlan, for promoting her book on your holiday picks for the Today Show. It was a great honor for her, and she asked that we extend her gratitude to you. 
Oh, thanks. It was one, it was great to do it. It's one of my favorite things to be able to uh, go on TV and promote author, other authors, you know, get, introduce people to some, a book they may have missed. It's a real honor. Thank right, you. Right, right. It's a great book and, and a great honor. So thanks. Well, Harlan, you're pretty well known for your, in the industry for your generosity, but I want to talk about the match. Okay. And to do that, I think we got to travel, time travel back to Wild, which was about a young boy who's discovered living alone in the woods. I would love to know how you dreamed up Wild. And then fast forward to the match, where we catch up with Wild, who is now, as he tells us, somewhere between 40 and 42. He didn't exactly know how old he was. Yeah, the idea came to me, and, and you know, Mary Kay, the ideas, sometimes they take forever. Sometimes they hit with a thunderbolt. You can never quite predict how it's going to work. But I was hiking through the the Rampo Mountains, which are the which are Appalachian Mountains in New Jersey. I know people don't think of New Jersey and mountains, but believe it or not, the Appalachians are here in New Jersey. And I got to be honest, I hate hiking. I get bored very, very quickly. I, I like walking city streets where I can look at storefronts and go into bookstores and go to cafes and see faces. But after a while, I'm walking. It's like there's a tree. It's another tree and another tree. I get it. You know what I mean? I know politically maybe incorrect to be saying that, but nature bores me. And I saw on a, on a parallel path a boy around five or six years old walking by himself. And I thought to myself, huh, what would happen if this kid just came out of the woods right now? And he said, I've only I've been here my whole life. I don't remember ever having parents. I've been fending for myself. I've broken into the cabins to feed myself or found things off the land. And he never knew how we ended up there. And now 30 years pass. He's grown up and he still doesn't know what happened to him that put him in the woods. And in the match, I answered that question of how this boy ended up in the woods. That was the start of the book. That's pretty awesome. And, all that, and, and just to say the ending, and I'm not going to give anything away, but oh, my God. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was one of my favorite. I, I pride myself on trying to get that ending to be something not only you won't see coming, but right. that will be emotionally resonant, that you'll, that you'll be moved by it. And, I, and I, I think the match delivered that. I hope so. Oh, it did. And that's the perfect description of it, too. I was like, what? Too. I was like, what? <laughs> uh, so anyway, Lee Child has said that Coben never, ever lets you down. And I have to totally agree with this. Can you talk about the decision to bring Wild back? You said this is what you did, but I like where? why did you decide to bring the character back? Well, when I wrote the first the first time I introduced Wild is a book called The Boy from the Woods, which was out last year, the year before, maybe. And I never told that answer. He solves a case. He's involved in a crime. And I really love the book and I love the character. But one of the people, you know, a lot of the readers were like, wait a minute, how did he end up in that woods? You haven't, you didn't tell us that. And I'm like, well, that's not what the story was about. So I decided, like in a, in a same way you would see maybe in a comic book, this is, the match is Wilde's origin story. So if you never read The Boy from the Woods, you don't have to. This is the origin story. You could read this one first. And if you have read The Boy from the Woods, then now you get those answers to, to, to where he was. So I always planned on writing at least a second and, and maybe more. I don't know yet. I haven't decided. But I really I always planned on writing a second book featuring Wild. So that's how that came about. But that's did awesome. you know when you wrote The Boy from the Woods, his origin story? Or did, or did that come as oh, you question. started to plan and plot the match? That's a really good question. I did know it, though, as I actually wrote it, um, it didn't work out exactly as I thought it was going to. It never does. So when, I, 
Right. You know what I mean? Like I knew the basics. I knew how he ended up in the woods. I knew who his parents were and all that. And on page one of the match, he meets his father. I mean, on page right. one, yeah. he's across the street from his biological father for the first time in his whole life that he knows, that he remembers anyway. And so I did know that answer, but there was a few things in it that I didn't know. Right? Isn't that how it, Mary Kay, that's how it always happens, isn't it? You kind yeah. of... Yeah, I mean... You think you maybe uh, for me, it's like there's like a road map. But since I have no sense of direction, my road map is pretty crudely drawn. And then <laughs> I, I've seen somewhere that somebody said it's like, you know, driving along through the forest at 80 miles an hour with your headlights on dim. You don't know what's coming up. Right. <laughs> Which is interesting change on the E.L. Doctorow quote that I often use when describing my own writing process which is writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. The only difference is I do know where that journey will end. So nice. cool. Very nice. Sorry, so, Ron. No, don't. No, don't trust me. That's, that's what you like. It's my favorite thing is, is, is when two amazing writers kind of have this back and forth. It gives, it gives everybody a new, rich experience. So I'm also really amazed by how you manage book after book to populate it with just these compelling characters and precarious situations. Do you have a process for putting this all together? And, and additionally, the tension building in, in a book like this one is just incredible. And like, well, what's the secret? Well, thank you. I'll, I'll use this book as an example. So I knew I wanted to write about his origin story and I knew the origin. And then there was different worlds that I really wanted to explore. I had been watching because I, I want to I have four kids and you want to bond with them. So I had been watching a lot of really bad reality TV show like The Bachelor. Mm-hmm. With them. And I shouldn't criticize. I know everybody can enjoy what they want to enjoy. A lot of my stuff's not for you either. Maybe you're watching Netflix and hate my stuff. That's fair. So, but I was just like, so I started to explore what, what this world really was. And I found out the world of reality TV. And then that got me to Instagram and bloggers and influencers and that whole social media thing. And none of it is what it seems to be. It is all fake, folks. That's one thing you should know if you watch those shows. It's all manufactured and fake. So I'm like, well, how can I get that in the story? And I want to do a little more, which I've done before, but I'm always fascinated by the new DNA uh, genealogy websites and how they're just instantly changing lives and changing our perceptions of ourselves. So can I throw a little bit of that in there as well? And so... And then I make sure my lead characters, which isn't just wild, it's also a woman named Hester Krimstein, who's his partner, making sure that each of them get their meals as you're writing it along. And so you throw all that into kind of a blender and you hit, you know, puree. <laughs> and then you, you, know, you know where you start, you know where you end. And then you try letting the characters um, take you there. That's that's sort of my my method. I love it. Yeah, um, talking about the reality um, show world, I was intrigued with that sort of rip from reality TV thread in the match. Wild's cousin, maybe, has been a wildly popular, then notorious, then canceled star of a bachelorette slash bachelor type reality television show. So uh, you said you just said that, you know, you um, peeked over your kids shoulders and sort of found yourself drawn into that world. Now, we've all watched media types and then writers canceled for what might seem to me like innocuous remarks or behaviors. Did you sort of draw draw from stuff you've seen in the real world um, to come up with that thread in the book? 
Because I found it really compelling. Always. I mean, you know, I'm not one of those who I don't I don't really do rip from the headlines or true crime, but it's always what's kind of going on. And it's not really a comment either pro or anti this idea of what we call cancellation. I mean, everybody does it. Both sides do it. Both sides call it different things. Um, And sometimes it is, quote unquote, deserved and sometimes it's not. So I don't really have a blanket um, statement about that. But I thought it'd be interesting to have this guy, this this character who had been such a star on, and so popular on one of these Bachelor type shows to watch him fall. And I've seen it actually happen, of course, in reality. It's happened to the host there as well. Yeah. And so I thought that would just add a different dimension. And so when this guy goes missing after he's being canceled, now Wild has a crime to solve, right? We, we're writing these books that have been... Uh, Mary Kay and I met, we figured out probably close to 25 years ago. Wow. I mean, we were just starting to figure out. But Babies. you need that suspense. You need those hooks. You need the crime. So when he goes, when, when Wild seeks him out to get some of the answers on his background, this guy has gone gone missing. Perhaps he's committed suicide for, from, from being canceled. Perhaps he's just gone recluse. No one knows. And so Wild has to find him. That becomes part of the mystery that opens up this world to me. Yeah. That's a big part. I, you refer to when we started, when I we first met at a mystery conference back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> I was writing under my real name. You were writing your wildly popular Myron Bolitar mysteries. And I really wish, as an aside, you would talk about the infamous Bleeding Balls cover. <laughs> <laughs> this I got to know. This I got to know. Well, so uh, back in those days, we were—I was paperback original. I think you were too, weren't? Wasn't? Or no, you were. I started out. I started out um, with Harper with hardback, and then to mass market paperback. So we did. We started the books to say that they had a small expectation is to is to give it too much credit. They, I had a fifteen thousand print run paperback original only five dollar paperback, and the cover of the first book had a bleeding football on it. It was a football mired in blood, and I despised it. So the second book in the series, they put a bleeding tennis ball on it, (laughs) and I became known as the author of the Bleeding Balls series. (laughs) So uh, it was, was, I begged them on the third one not to, and they came up with a cover even worse, which was a skeleton in a basketball uniform. And um, I mean, I think they really doomed Myron. And then there's the golfer with his head on backwards because Myron was a sports agent. Of course, you're looking to market it. They marketed only that aspect. And anybody who didn't like sports thought it was going to be one of those Biff scores, the winning touchdown type books. And they weren't at all. So I really had a hard time breaking out with that series. And it wasn't until I left that series that I really had much greater success than, I mean, the series did nicely and inside the mystery community, it did very well. And I was pleased with all that, but it wasn't until I left the series that I was able to really break yeah. out. As and by the way, when you, when you are um, talking about your 15,000 print run, my first hardback had a 4,500 copy print run. So but that's like, that's like 50,000 paperbacks. I mean, yeah, I had At a the time. I was so thrilled This is interesting, Mary Kay. I wonder if people think about this too. Like a lot of people who are listening to us maybe are new writers. Right. And so they they get all this information that we didn't have back in those days and they're checking their Amazon rankings and they're but 
I, I was that small, but I didn't realize what a pimple on the ass of publishing I was because I just didn't know. I did. I realized that I was nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, you know, if I had known the odds and at the time, Dell, I was a Dell paperback original. They were doing 24 books a year. I did one every nine months. So they were having, say, 20 to 24 authors a year. And I think only one other is still published over the five or six years they did it. So if I understood those odds earlier on, I probably would have, you know, there's a better chance I would have given up or focused on that, but I never did. I just focused on the very next book and left all that, you know, almost like I stuck my fingers in my ear going, la, 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 I can't hear you. Yeah. The Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Page One Books. The Page One Book subscription provides the personal touch of an indie bookstore with the delight and surprise of an online subscription service curated just for you. The literary matchmakers at Page One Books hand-select books just for you based on your preferences and their knowledge. At Page One Books, you are more than an algorithm. Shop now at pageonebooks.com. That's page, the number one, books.com. Choose their three, six, or 12-month subscription plan. The gift of page one is always a custom fit. And now you can get 15% off all book subscriptions with the code FRIENDS15. And then you transitioned to a genre, I kind of think maybe you pioneer domestic thrillers. Let's talk about how that happened. And you'd said that, you know, Myron, they, your publishers targeted Myron to a, to a specific demographic, it seemed like. Now, do you call, do you call your books domestic thrillers? What do you call them? No, I mean, I mean besides the one you bestsellers. I have, well, I have, I have no problem with any title people use. It's just not, unfortunately, accurate. So, for example, my first big breakout book was Tell No One. Um, the lead character in Tell No One is single. Is a single doctor living mm-hmm. in, you know, his, his wife is murdered eight years before the book starts. He has no children. Right. So he's living alone when our story starts. So I don't know how that could possibly be a domestic thriller. I, th- I actually think of Tell No One and some of the other ones, that's almost more of a love story. I mean, the, the, but that idea came to me, mm-hmm. you know, the idea, if I could, I'll give you, I'll give you the 30 second or one minute, how you came up with this weird idea. Okay. It came to me from two places. One, I was watching really crummy romance movies on TV. And what struck me about it was how often we have the story where, you know, the, the man loses his wife, right? His wife dies and he can't get on with his life. And then a hot babe walks by and he's fine. Right. How many times we've we seen that in these movies? It's like, you know, be a mini driver or Robin Wright and, and whatever it is. And I said, what about the guy who can't go on? What about the guy who's lost his soulmate? And then I lost my parents at a fairly young age and I missed them greatly. And when my daughters and kids were born, I was thinking the same way we all do. Wouldn't it be great if I could see them again? And I was looking at a webcam one day, a street cam. And I said, what would I do if I saw my parents walk by? Wow. So I took oh, yeah. these two ideas and I put them together. A man and a woman happily married. The wife is murdered. Eight years pass. He can't move on with his life. He gets an email. He clicks a hyperlink. He sees a webcam. His dead wife walks by. That was the start. So that one, I don't, it's not really domestic because it's not a family. So gone for good. Also, the guy's single. So half the time, the guy's, the person is single. 
And so I don't really get how that really fits with the domestic. At the same time, I get it. The stranger, stay close. These are worlds that take place in sort of a domesticated community and beautiful worlds. So Yeah, but the, those characters were not your typical, say, lonely Lonely, hard drinking, hard boiled right. man with a PI license and a gun. He that was, was never my Right. He was an everyman. Your characters seem to me yeah. to be so relatable because they're everyman. I I could picture my husband or my friends being the characters in those books. I agree with that. I mean, I think there's something Hitchcocky in the everyman and the the ordinary man in the extraordinary circumstances. You do that too. I mean, that's that's I try. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you do with a lot more humor. Um, yeah. But that's 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 sort of what I want to do. But even when I did Myron Bolitar, I really wanted to stand a lot of what had been then been um, the conventions on on their heads. So you know, uh, Chandler said that he walked that his character would walk down these mean streets alone. Myron went nowhere alone. He had Win with him, or he had Esperanza. He lived in his parents' basement for several books. He was a mama's boy. Um, he was, he was insecure. Uh, he, he was, you know, so he was very different. I, and that was my intent when I created my, I did not want that tough old fashioned detective because it had been done and done really well, um, already. So I, I wanted something more modern, more a guy like myself. And that was part of what writing the Myron series was, was all about. That's awesome. I want to take it back just a little bit because in, in uh, the match, you actually in, incorporate a whole bunch of information about DNA and DNA testing things and, and some even some technologies, too. And so it keeps everything kind of current. But what kind of research do you do for that, and especially the DNA thing? Have you done that yourself? I did do the DNA testing myself. You know, I, I, I was disappointed in results because it was nothing at all surprising. <laughs> And it was, you know, I have no strange things in my background. I was all ready. To, oh, yeah, you know, I'm this big and I have these eye color and I can't possibly be. Oh, wait, I'm exactly that. Um, so that didn't really work out for me. Uh, I'm this is something that I've said before, but I'm not a big researcher and I don't recommend a lot of research for people who are trying to write the kind of stuff that that I write or Mary Kay writes because you get lost in it. There's a couple. I'll defend it for two for a couple of reasons. One is. Research is a lot more fun than writing. So if I ever have the choice of researching or writing, I'm going to choose research. And we both know, or Mary Kay and I know a lot of good friends who have gotten lost in those weeds. They just keep doing research. The second reason is, is that have you ever read that book where the writer has fallen in love with the research? So they keep slowing it down by act, uh, by adding factoids that we really don't care about. Yes. That's not an issue with my books because I don't know anything. I'm on a need to know basis. The third thing is most of my research is not cutting edge because it's readily available to everybody, which makes it scarier. Nothing, nothing, you know, anybody could find this stuff out in seconds online. And that to me is a lot scarier. When I wrote The Stranger, for example, people thought I did a lot of research on, on no, the fake a pregnancy website was just, it's just out there. Type in fake a pregnancy, you'll get a website that will only help you fake your pregnancy. Yeah. You know, trick somebody. So the fact that it's so readily available and easy is how I do my research. Are you that way too, Mary Kay? Are you a big researcher? I, I, I wait until I need to know something and then I sort of look it up online. I mean, this morning I was looking up vintage travel trailers. And <laughs> oh. 
I do some research because I want to get it right. Just because those those annoying emails you get yeah. about there is no possible way that blah blah happened in blah blah that was not invented in blah blah year, and it just you just want to go. Could you just read the book? I told you it was fiction. I told you I make this shit up. <laughs> <laughs> the old George Carlin line: "What do you do for a living? I make shit up." That's yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. One more question about your books and then the demographics, because one of the things I love about your book specifically is that your appeal is to both male and female readers. You have a big, um, big gap there of them. Is that intentional or, and why do you think that's so? Nothing is intentional. I'm, I'm not that smart. Um, I really don't like look at things and say, Oh, I need to build up. And I also think it's, it, in my case, it, it causes damage. I just have to tell the best story that I can Understanding also that my natural instinct and impulses is, is are commercial. They, you know, I'm a I have commercial instincts, so I use those. But I don't sit there going, oh, you know what, my my demographic of women 45 to 65 is down, so I better add this in. I think it destroys a book, and it works even more so. You know, with doing a lot of TV right now, I get the question a lot. Do you change what you write for for TV? And that's just the kiss of death. If you start writing thinking, oh, this will make a great movie or TV series, you're dead. The caveat to that is, is I'm willing to make tremendous changes when I do an adaptation. I'm not at all slavishly devoted to the text. If I think it works better to change a character from male to female, which I've done many times, or move a story. My next one, the book took place in New Jersey. Now it's taking place in Warsaw, Poland. So I love making those kind of changes and things like that. But you can't, everything has to be slave to your story when you're writing a book. You can't let anything else like that interfere. Well, that's a perfect segue into my question about those Netflix series. Now, you're you're heavily involved in those, right, Harlan, including doing some of the scripting or all of the scripting? Some of them I'm heavily involved in, some less so. I don't write too often the actual scripts, but I am, on the British ones, I'm like what they call here in America the showrunner. I'm the head executive producer along with my partner. And so I mean, I outline it all. I work with all of the writers. I rewrite them all. I watch the dailies pretty much every day. Um, the one, uh, the innocent in Spain, the gone for good in France, and the was in Poland did less of the so. It depends on each circumstance. I had a great, fantastic director, head writer in, in Spain with the innocent, which is my personal favorite of the foreign language ones. And so I could really rely on him. I didn't like the last episode. I completely worked with him on rewriting it. But for the most part, I wasn't needed on a daily basis. So each one is different where I'm needed, what I'm needed for, and how it's all working out. You know, the question everybody wants to know and is, you know, how does this guy who sets his books in New Jersey, how do these series then end up in England and France and Poland and Spain? Yeah. Uh, well, two things. When you mentioned when you mentioned that I'm, I'm in 45 languages, I actually sell more books overseas than in the United States. I'm one of the few authors that we that you know that 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 can that do that. You and so, Karen Slaughter. Yes, Slaughter does it also. I think there's a few yeah. others um, that we sell more books overseas than we do here. And so, a number of years ago, I had sold the movie rights to Tell No One in America to a huge company. And they wrote a script that I absolutely despised. And they just, uh, it was just whatever. And that happens a lot. And then this, when I I had one opportunity at the three-year mark to get the rights back, and this crazy young French guy named Guillaume Canet 
was constantly calling me with these great ideas. And I'm like, it better be a friend show. I don't you know. But I fell in love with the idea, and I took that risk, and we made a movie called Tell No One, uh, which in Europe is a legendary film. And I don't say that because it's mine. I, it, right. won, it was nominated for nine of their Oscars. It won four of them. It was the biggest grossing film that year. It's won everything. It's on everybody's top ten all-time thriller list. So that also helped me break out in France. Uh, and I, that's all Guillaume Canet. I don't, I'm not taking a credit for that. But then I started to love that idea of like, wow, this is interesting. There's a whole world here besides the U.S. So I made another show. I made one in England with another producer. And then Netflix kind of saw this and said, you know what? Can we make like an overall deal? Because we want material for each of these countries. As you know, if you have Netflix, they have lots of languages. They are they are they are in 190 countries, over 200 million households subscribing 200 million households. That's if you can be three people per household, that would be 600 million people. And so they said, you know, your books do well in these things. We know we can adapt them. Can we make an overall deal for all the ones that are not committed? Uh, they were not interested at the time in the in Myron or Myron Bolotar or the Mickey Bolotar series. So we made this deal, understanding that it was going to be in various countries. And um, my, the seventh one will come out um I'm not allowed to say, but within the next few months, then the seventh one will come out, Hold Tight in Poland. And it's been it's been really fun and it's been great because they're also quite different. The British are bonkers crazy. The 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 Spanish one are very are much are are, are really hardcore and graphic. The Polish one very moody and atmospheric, and I kind of love that. Yeah, yeah. I loved the stranger. I kept freaking out when she <laughs> <laughs> I was yes. like, what? Now the stranger was a, and the stranger in the book to give an example was a now this isn't to be politically correct was a white male yeah. a white male computer nerd when I wrote the book ten years ago that kind of worked and I, I was we were looking at that for casting and there's the first scene when the stranger drops the bomb on the actor Richard Armitage and we were sort of like doing some testing I'm like it's just not working with a guy can we try let's try a woman and then we found Hannah John Kamen who just had that attitude. And I'm like, that's that's the stranger. So I also do casting. And so that that was what I mean by changing it up from the book. What I had in the book just didn't work. Now, I've seen that one of your daughters, Charlotte, is it, that wrote at least one episode? How, did she like- written, yeah, she wrote two for the Stay Close and she wrote one on this on the stranger. And she's really been quite an asset. My partner, a woman named Nicholas Schindler, had read one of Charlotte's pilot scripts that she had written of spec and said, we need young blood on the show. And she's knows your stuff and has that attitude. So most of the books do not have, say, the teen stories that you'll see on the Netflix show. If you saw The Stranger, there's a whole thing with an alpaca and all yeah. that. That was not in the book. And in and in Stay Close, the two teenage girls with the fingernail in the drink and all of that, not in the book. Almost all of that is Charlotte. Nice. You know, almost all of those things were Charlotte because she gets that world a lot better. Almost every funny line on these shows are Charlotte. There's uh, I, one of my favorite moments in, in uh, Stay Close is Lorraine's voicemail where she says, uh, keep it short. This isn't a podcast. Right. Yes. Not, yes. Like, That's yeah. a voicemail. Keep it short. And I'm like, and I literally was like, when it came out, I forgot. I'm like, I'm like, who came up with that line? Charlotte. So, you know, a lot of that sort of stuff, she just gets that world, the world better than I do. So she's become really a very valuable member of the team. That's pretty awesome, uh, and especially the the fingernail in the drink, man. I, oh. Yeah, I, I, and it doesn't really exist, but it, it was they were going to make it. So she had read about it and see, you know, those are worlds that you and I are not in, Ron. Right. And, and, no. 
And now they actually have a strip you can take and carry with you and do it, but not the fingernail they decided not to make, but it does exist. That's crazy. So we were going to ask also about your children and their activity on Twitter, the Twitter, the tech, Twitter burns. Is that a uh, trait in the family? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty heavily goofed on as the, as the goofy dad. It's kept yeah. me humble. Not that I, not that I needed not to be humble, but my kids are always kind of goofing on me. Um, in fact, we were just looking, I was at a, right now at a, filming this from a, a photographer studio. And last time I was here, he had me take these weird pictures that were used in the Metro in Paris where I was lying down. Um, almost like Burt Reynolds, though, was clothed with my, my hand holding my head. And I, <laughs> and I sent it, of course, right to my kids. And my daughter literally is like, okay, now I know what I can talk about in therapy. <laughs> and the other one was, you look like a sex poster in Amsterdam. Those are the comments. <laughs> so sometimes I'll actually take those texts. Uh, I'll snap a photo and I'll put them on my Instagram or whatever. And those are always the most popular. I know. <laughs> Your kids are relentless. Yeah. And they're funny. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the thing. Charlotte writes humor, especially. So all of my kids are very cutting edge and funny. And of course, I set them up for it. I know when I sent that out that their reaction is going to be something like that. You just serve it and then they slam it back to it's you. It's easy, right? It's easy. What a great bonding experience. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. Okay. So, you know, I think I warned you before we started that I was going to ask you to share your best slash worst dad joke. <laughs> Actually, I was looking it up before. So it's what did Jay-Z call his wife before they got married? Fiance. Thank you very much. <laughs> He's don't here all week, folks. <laughs> you, want, you want it bad. They don't get much worse. Yeah, they don't get much worse than that. Yeah, that one's good. That was good. So, of course, everybody always wants to know what you have coming out next, both in your books and your TV projects. Um, my next TV show will be uh, Netflix from Netflix Poland called Hold Tight. And it's it's pretty interesting. It's it's, again, very, very different from the British ones. But uh, I think it turned out pretty well. I'm too much in the weeds to know how good it is. I'll be honest. I mean, there was problems in the beginning. We did some refilming. Then I loved it. You know, it's like a book. I mean, Mary Kay can tell you too, right? One day you'll be writing your book and you'll be like, this is the worst piece of crap anyone's ever written. No one will ever read it. Next day you'll be like, this is pure genius. Someone's going to read my old books and never give this one a chance. Am I right, Mary Kay? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, my agent and my editor will say, well, what do you think? And I'll say, you know, I don't have, I have no perspective. It's going to take me six months to get over the postpartum depression before, yeah. before I say, okay, this does not suck. So right. I'm the worst, I'm the worst judge of my own work. When you get the question of like, which book should I start? I'm always like, don't ask me. I never real. I can't even, but, I, but what I've done is I've sort of given up on, on worrying about it. Anyway, that's the next TV series. I'll be making that announcement. I'm not allowed to make quite yet about a, a TV series here in the USA in the next uh, couple of weeks is, uh, we'll be announcing as well. And um, every March, my goal is always the th to have a, usually the third Tuesday in March is my release date. It's been that way for a lot of years. And in the end of the day, the TV stuff is fun and all of that. And it's great. And it's it's everything you think it's going to be, but the books are the, are, are, you know, are the priority and they have to be, that's my day job versus my, my night job or my hobby. 
Well, I got to say that the match, I'm sure, is going to do spectacular. It's got a great cover. I mean, why am I showing it to you? Nobody can see it, but it's a great cover. Ooh, look at that. Yeah, and there are no, there, and, you know, the big, the bonus is there are no bleeding balls on it. <laughs> yes, now I get involved much more in the covers. You know, it used to be that the, the things would turn out the way they do, and you know this too, uh, Mary Kay, because our careers, we're both lucky, I think, in hindsight, that neither one of us hit it big early in our careers. I mean, we yeah. we both toiled. So I used to say that, you know, I didn't have that much editing in my books because no one cared. Now I don't do much editing in my books because they're a little bit afraid of me. So, it's, uh, you know, you kind of have both the same thing with the covers. And so now I do get much more. I, I don't know. I'm also not a graphic artist. I know my strengths and weaknesses. Graphic art is not one of them. So I know it when I see it. Uh, what I've also learned with covers, and I wonder if you agree with this, Mary Kay, I decide within two seconds if I like a cover or not because – you, the reader, the reader, are only looking at it two seconds. If you're in a bookstore and you're going to pick it up, you're not going to look at it for ten sec, you know, two minutes and decide. Oh, I'm, I think it's a pretty good cover. It's what I think right out of the box. I love that cover right out of the box. I love the wind cover right before this. Yeah, right wind was really wind really drew me in. Yeah, it was a very very as soon as I saw it. And if I have to think about it for a second, it's usually not a great cover. Like, mm, and then I'm talking myself into it. Well. You know, if Ron's walking past it in the bookstore, he's not talking himself into it. He's either drawn to it or he's not. Yeah, That's exactly right. I, I always the, say you can judge a book by its cover. Yeah, <laughs> I think the the thing in commercial fiction is if you can walk past it on an end cap at an airport bookstore and not want it, then it's not a selling cover. That's and, right. I, you know. I want to sell I great covers. And Mary Kay, your covers also give you a feel. I'm, I know I'm going on vacation with that right. book. I'm going to go someplace warm and I'm going to want to have a margarita with me and a frozen okay. drink of some sort. And I'm going to sit on a, a lounge chair. And your covers wonderfully, I think, reflect, quote unquote, your brand. Don't you think? Thank you. Yeah. No, I'm, I, in fact, we just we just redid my cover look with last year's The Newcomer and then with the Santa suit and uh, coming up in May, Homewreckers. So, yeah, I want to keep them fresh. I want to keep them interesting. Hey, I forgot to ask you one thing before we um, let you go to your cover boy photo, sh photo shoot. You're having a cover boy photo shoot. Is that what I understand? Right here? Actually, yeah. my daughter's doing the photo shoot um, with someone I've done with, and, and we're doing one or two dad and daughter shots because nice. the one that we have that they keep using when we have press material, things we do together, was taken in can like three or four years ago, maybe more. And my daughter doesn't like the picture, which I don't blame her. It's not a good picture. And she's oh, gorgeous. So I said, let's take some new pictures to, together today. So that's why we're here. Yeah. How was it shooting, filming during the pandemic? Because I saw some some of your social media posts about the difficulties of that. It was really hard. So each one was different. Stay close. I'll use stay close as the example because I know most people have or that would be the one most people have seen. You know, we had to shut down several times. That last wedding scene, in the middle of it, we actually had to shoot around because one of the kids ended up being tested positive on that day. Oh, it was constant, everyday testing. The hardest one, I think, was we did. I did a show called Gone for Good, Netflix, France. We were filming in Nice and right at the height, and they decided to try to go ahead with it, and we just took an entire hotel because it was empty, no one was traveling. And we took over an entire hotel and all of our cast and crew had to live in that hotel and be in that hotel all of the time wow. for like two or three months when they weren't filming. And so Spain closed down right before we finished. We had to do it again in July. 
I haven't been on set. You know, I usually go on these sets. I haven't been on any of these sets or any of these premieres. Champagne problem. It's not a problem really for me, but it makes the everything a, a, a lot a lot more difficult to film, obviously. And there were scenes that didn't turn out exactly how we wanted to because we couldn't travel to a certain destination. Uh, one quick example, in the in the Stay Close, there's murder by the, we have ruins that we use quite frequently. Yeah. We had really fantastic, I don't want to mention the name of it, it's an old castle that we had where the ruins were in the woods instead. And two days before we were filming, we lost them. And we found that spot, which ended up working out well, but it's really tiny. It's only that one ruin. So we had to shoot it in ways to make it look a little bit more exotic. And we found that, I think, two days before we were going to shoot, they closed it down for COVID, the one we were going to use. And that happened with a lot of places we were going to film. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, old friend. That was a lot of fun, as always. Mary Kay, love you. Good to see you. You Ron? Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be with you and our listeners, all of them, as are we, big fans. And I know they're going to be thrilled to get their hands on the match May, March 15th. March 15th. 15th. Yep. Thank you. Bye. So on behalf of Mary Kay, Patty, Kristen, and Christy, thank you for listening. We appreciate the support from you all. You can purchase Harlan's book along with pre-ordering Mary Kay's The Homewreckers at our Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page. We are so glad you're here, and please tell a friend. Thank you to our presenting sponsors, Charleston Coffee Roasters and Page One Books, for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletters. Remember, use code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters and code FRIENDS, plural, FRIENDS15 for 15% off book subscriptions at page one. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.